I want to read to you scripture. And as I said, I kind of told you before, this is kind of part of what we call the travel narrative in the Gospel of Luke. And there are certain parables that we read in this travel narrative that are really not found anywhere else in all the New Testament. You know, if a lot of times, you know, you'll find a, a, a parable that is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But this is one, there's some that don't occur anywhere else. We're going to look at this particular one in Luke chapter 12. And we'll start with verse 13 and read down through verse 21. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Now get, get it in mind is what's going on right here. Jesus was speaking, and we see that, you know, even in the first verse of chapter 12, where it says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people were gathered together that they tra were trampling on one another. Remember this, we've mentioned it before. Wherever Jesus showed up, he was the biggest show in town. I mean, people would come not just by the hundreds, but even by the thousands to get to hear him speak, which also makes me think that Jesus must have had some kind of a powerful voice. It wasn't like mine. He did, Jesus, Jesus didn't need no microphone. He could just get up there and let it fly. Anyway, and so people would hang on his words. There were some people that were listening to Jesus speak simply because they wanted to find a reason to make a fool out of him. But there were some people that were drawn to whatever he said like iron filings to a magnet. They wanted to hear what he had to say because he had the words of life. And here we see that during the middle of this time in which he was speaking to people by the thousands, uh, a man interrupted him. And we start with this in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul? You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Very serious words. This happened back on a Halloween weekend in Omaha, Nebraska, back in 2015. It was, uh, well, it was, you can call it either really late Saturday night or really early Sunday morning, but it was kind of in those wee hours of the night. There was a woman named Jacqueline Idy, and she decided she wanted to have a special time in the zoo there in Omaha, Nebraska. It was the Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium. And so in the wee hours of Sunday morning, this woman, Jacqueline, who's 33 years old, she decided that what better way could she have of spending her Halloween weekend than by sneaking inside the zoo and petting a tiger? Yes, now, she was allegedly aided in doing this by drinking copious quantities of alcohol. So, 
she was drunker than a boiled owl. And she got in there and she tried to make nice with the tiger, but the tiger was really not interested in playing footsies with her. And she ended up walking away with her left hand mauled. The story ended right there. We don't know how mauled it was, but she probably wasn't able to give the Boy Scout handshake for a while after that because Boy Scouts shake hands with the left hand. Anyway, this, is, this woman had what we would call a foolish assumption. She thought that the tiger was so cute that it would want to make friends with her. Let me tell you something. When you're a cat and you weigh about 400 pounds, you don't have to be interested in being nice to anybody. And he was not, and you know, you just think of it. There was meat eater and bone cruncher versus drunk woman. That was always a bad thing to put together. Here we're going to read about another, another man that made a false assumption and a poor assumption. Here, and Jesus, and so we start off really in verses uh, 13 through 15 talking about the peril of greed. It says, someone in the crowd spoke up and said to him, Rabbi, my brother, tell my brother to give me my rightful share of the inheritance. Now you might say, why in the world were they asking Jesus about this? Well, here's the reason. Jesus was considered a rabbi by many of his followers, and he was a rabbi, he was a teacher. And, and Jesus might not have had any legal standing, but a lot of times back then in that culture, some legal disputes were turned over to a rabbi for him to be the one to judge in how things ought to be done. And he would be a mediator, or he'd be an arbitrator. And so this is the way that they would look at rabbis, mainly because, probably because, the rabbis probably knew more of God's law than what anybody else did, and they were very well educated. And so this man pipes up and says, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance, because he thought that that would be part of Jesus' job. But this man's problem was not his brother. His problem was his greed because what he wanted was not justice. He wanted a decision against his brother. The reason that we know that is because of what Jesus said to him. In verse 14, it's in your Bible, it may say Jesus called him man. If you wanted to, we could kind of rephrase it. And Jesus was not real kind to him. He said, Mr. Who appointed me to be the judge or arbitrator over a property dispute between you and your brother? And then Jesus not only addressed this man, but he addressed the whole crowd that was listening. And he said, you see to it that you keep yourselves free from greed or covetousness, no matter what form it takes, because no one finds life by accumulating loads of money and things. This man's problem was, was that he was greedy. It was not that he was concerned with what was fair. He was concerned with getting more. And so Jesus was warning people about this person of someone who wanted more. You have to avoid the perils of greed. You have to be aware of them because of what greed does. Number one is we have to guard ourselves against greed because greed deceives us. It tricks us. It makes us think, not look at things right. Greed tells us that life is made up solely of our possessions. Note that today, whenever we ask how much a man is worth, what we really mean is how much money does he have in the bank, how much land does he own, and how many possessions that he has. In other words, how many Rolls Royces does he have in his garage, and does he have an air-conditioned doghouse or something like that. I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, 
Understand this, is that this is what greed does to you. It makes you look at things always in terms of dollars and cents. You talk about, you know, a person whenever he dies, people will say, well, how much does he, did he leave behind? Well, what difference that should that make anyway? But I can always tell you what the answer to that is. How much did he leave behind? Everything. That's the way it works. Greed also warps our view of Jesus Christ. Because this man was so covetous, he could see Jesus in no other light other than a rabbi who might be able to influence his brother. Listen, I read this from some old Scottish preacher. He said, our sense of want largely shapes our conception of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll say that again. Our sense of want largely shapes our conception of Jesus Christ. In other words... What you think about Jesus is going to be governed a lot of times by how greedy you are or how, how you look at material possessions. You know, I'm wondering about this, and this was a thing that I was thinking about the other day whenever I was looking over my notes and thinking about it. Could this be what lies behind the health and wealth gospel? Hmm? Because there are certain people, that Christians, that will tell you, you know, that God wants you to be happy, and if he wants you to be happy, he wants you to be rich. And so, you know, get God to give you things. I've often wondered about that. If you want to believe in the health and wealth gospel, if that's the way you want to live, why don't you go down to some little poor ratty village in Guatemala and tell them that God wants them to be rich and see what they have to say? Because they don't know what it's like. And to tell you the truth, some of them are a lot happier than people who have everything at their disposal. Greed is something that destroys a person's soul. If you were to look in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, I'm going to paraphrase some of it, but Proverbs states this about the greedy person. Here it goes. The greed causes a person to lie in wait for his own blood. He sets an ambush for his own life. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Greed causes you to die from the inside out. The lesson from this is be satisfied with what you have because what you have is evidently what God sees is all that you need. Let me tell you a story about this actually happened. In fact, two stories back to back. There's a guy I know, his name's Jack, and he was a member of a rather large congregation, and some of the people in there were wealthy as far as the material goods of this world go. And they were going to have, his Sunday school class was going to have a Christmas party at the house of one of the church members. This church member had a job and had some income that was a lot more than probably what any of us have, and he, had, he and his wife had just had this enormous mansion-like house built for them, and so whenever Jack shows up with his wife and the, the man shows them kind of where things are in the house, the man's just overwhelmed with it. And so Jack turns to the owner of the house and he said, would it be rude of me to ask you how much this cost? And the man looked at him and he said, yes, it would. <laughs> Back whenever I was a pastor in one town, uh, there was a... a a time that I, I hadn't been there for very long, maybe a couple of months, and I had to be out one Sunday to preach in a revival meeting in Colleen. And so whenever I got back at the end of that week, I 
went to the church office and the church secretary handed me a visitor's card. And it said on there, it was signed Mrs. L.L. Crawford. And, uh, and it, her address, it wasn't a highway address, wasn't a post office box number, it just said Crawford Farms, as if we were supposed to know where that was. And uh, it said, had a line, would, would you like a visit from the pastor? And it was scrawled on there, that would be nice. I could tell by the style of her handwriting, she was a lady that had to be well into her 70s. And so I asked the, the secretary, I said, who is this? And she said, well, uh, that's Mr. Crawford's mother. I said, well, where is this Crawford farm thing? And she said, well, you go out such and such highway, and you've seen this, you've probably seen this great big house way off the road. I said, the one that looks like it was built by an Arabian sheik. She said, yep, that's it right there. Said she lives out there on Crawford Farm. She said, I think, she said, I think she lives in a little cottage out there because there are a few cottages there. She said, I bet she would like a visit. She said, I bet she's lonely. I said, well, bye, George, I'll go see her. And so one day I was making visits and I saw the road that would lead finally to the house and I turned on it and I wound around and I finally came to a gate that said check in with office before going any farther. So I go in, there's a secretary, and I said, I'm looking for a Mrs. L.L. Crawford. Does she live here? And I remember the secretary said, yes, she does. She lives in that great big house right there. And she wasn't kidding. It's huge. Anyway, she said, uh, let me call her and see if it would be okay for you to visit, because I told her who I was. And so she hangs up the phone. She said, she'll be ready in 15 minutes. Sit down and have a cup of coffee while you wait, and we'll talk. And that was what we did. So at the end of 15 minutes, I hopped in my truck, and I started driving down the road that led to that house. And the closer I got, the bigger it got. It was enormous. I had never seen a house like that outside of Buckingham Palace, nearly. The foundation that the house was built on was 305 feet long. I mean, that's bigger than a football field. It was two stories. It had been featured on the lifestyles of the rich and famous. I went up there, and, and, and as I got close to it, I thought, where am I going to park my truck without it leaking oil all over the place? <laughs> I mean, really. And I got there, and so I tried to park in a, in a place where I was, could be discreet. And then I walked up there to the door and rang the doorbell, and it had double doors. Each door was four feet wide. I mean, you could, you could, you could drive your truck in there. It's huge. Never seen anything like it before. Then this maid comes out with her maid's uniform on, and she said, follow me. And she took me through the living room and then took me back into a parlor. And there was a bar there that was en had enough liquor in it to have two bar mitzvahs. I mean, I'd never seen anything like this in my life. I mean, it was just like I was a country boy that had come to the big time. And I just looked at everything, and there were these glassed-in gun cases and there were all these browning over and under shotguns. And for those of you that may know what I'm talking about, these were all grade four. I mean, this, this was the top of the line. I mean, I, I just had never seen anything like it in my life. Pretty soon, Mrs. Crawford came in with her little ivory-headed cane and a big smile on her face, and, and she began talking to me. And she, the thing that she was interested in talking about was the time that she was the church secretary at the First Baptist Church in Seminole, Oklahoma. That she got to meet Dr. Herschel Hobbs whenever he would come by there. And um, 
we talked about a lot of things. She said, you're welcome to come out here anytime that you want to. You can bring your family and you can swim out there in our swimming pool. It's built in the shape of Texas. And I said, okay. And uh, she waited, and I guess she could see I was just gawking, and she just waved her hand and she said, people tell me it must be wonderful to live in a place like this every day. She said, but if you're here every day, this doesn't mean anything to you. She said, I'd rather be back in my own little house in Rockport, Texas. And you know, I never could get past that because there was a lady who realized that monetary things were really not that special. They get old, they get boring, just like everything else in this temporary world. Now, another thing that we see in here is we see about the, not just the peril of greed, but these deadly assumptions. We read in here where Jesus says, he says, I'm going to follow this up with a parable. He said, one year a man's farm produced a huge bumper crop. As he was trying to figure out what to do with all of it, he asked himself, what should I do because my barns are not big enough to contain the harvest? Then he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones so that I can store all my grain and other goods. Then I'll lean back and I'll say to myself, yeah, plenty of goods stored up, enough to last for years and years to come, so relax. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. Then God said to him, you idiot. Tonight, I'm calling in the note on your life. Now who's going to be the proud owner of this estate you've put together? Jesus said, yes, this is how it is with the person who accumulates a fortune for himself, but is dead broke as far as God is concerned. Here's the peril of greed. I mean, the, the deadly assumptions that this man made. Number one, he assumed that he owned everything. Notice, my barns, my crops, my life. My soul. Everything was my, 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 my. You know, he didn't understand that everything that he owned was on loan from God. Something that God enforced with the Israelite people. Whenever he brought them into the promised land, there were laws and regulations about land ownership. If you had a parcel of land, it was supposed to stay in your family. And if you were broke and needed money, you could sell it, but it had to go back to your family at the end of the period that ended with the year of Jubilees. Because the land could not be sold forever, God said. Why? Because the land belonged to Him, not the people that roosted on it. That's what it was about. And it was just a reminder to all of us, whatever we have, we may think it's ours, but really it's just on loan from God. We really own nothing that we can and will lose. In other words, whatever you have that you can lose, whatever you have that you are going to lose someday, you really don't own it. It's just on loan from God. There is no one who is rich to whom the grave brings bankruptcy. Listen, God gives us something, though, that does last forever. As a matter of fact, if you, re- you can read about it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where it talks about in there that He has begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible, in other words, undying, undefiled and it fades not away 
That is something that lasts forever. Strive for that, not for all this stuff that you're going to leave behind someday. This man assumed that his highest goal was to become wealthy, and he ended up dying flat broke. Listen, I'll tell you what your highest goal can be in life, and that is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to be able to know him. We've talked about this man before, but George Truett, whenever he was the pastor at the First Baptist Church in Dallas back in the first part of the 20th century, one of his key verses was this, and he took it out of Philippians chapter 3, and, that, and it was this, I want to know him. To know him, that was the text for the sermon that was preached at his funeral because that was his goal in life. He wanted to know Jesus Christ. Not to come to know him, but to know him and keep knowing him better. There is no higher goal that you can have in life. Folks, you can be become a multimillionaire and still not have the thing that you need most. And that is a knowledge of Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. This man was a fool because he assumed that he controlled his future. He said, I'll get all of this stuff together and I will lean back and say to my soul, Soul, thou hast laid up many goods for many years, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He believed that he controlled his future, that he was in charge of tomorrow, that he would always have tomorrow, and the next year, and the next year. But we don't have that. We will say to each other whenever we depart from this place, we'll see you tomorrow, we'll see you next week, we'll see you next Wednesday, we'll see you next Sunday. But that's always just wishful thinking. We don't know whether we will see each other tomorrow. We don't know if someone is going to be coming to our funeral in two or three days. We don't know that. We don't need to be like this man. He invested a future he didn't have. He invested in a future he did not have, and he failed to invest in a future he could have. What we need to do is to understand that we don't control the future if you want to have your future controlled, trust in God. Another thing we see is this man assumed that he had no one to thank but himself for all that he had. When really, he had no one to blame but himself in the end. And here's another thing. He assumed that wealth would bring him rest and relaxation and peace of mind. Because he had much good laid up for many years. But you know something? Real rest is offered by Jesus. If we were to look in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where he talked in there, verses 19 through 29, he, he, there are these verses that ring in our ears because you've heard them so many times where Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. That's how you're going to find rest. There is no peace and there is no rest for those who do not know Christ. But there is a peace and a rest that no one taketh from us whenever we find it in Jesus Christ. Where is your hope? Let's pray together. Now, our Father, we thank you for the hope. We thank you for the future we thank you for all that can be ours in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, let us put away those things that are so impermanent 
and find only our hope in your Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, I pray that your hand would be upon each of us throughout the rest of this day. Guide us in your paths of righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.